Hello and welcome back or welcome for the first time to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley. I'm clinically a heretic, but I hope that over the next 30 to 40 or 50 minutes that you and I have an excellent time discussing the Bible. Here at Paradox, sermons are designed to start discussions and not end them. So if you disagree with me on something, that's fine. That's healthy. What we're hoping is that these thoughts I'm about to share will help you to think critically and with wisdom about what it is that you actually believe. We are continuing our series in the book of Lamentations, and today's episode is entitled Experiencing Betrayal. If you missed part one of this series in Lamentations, I need to take a moment to bring you up to speed. The story of Lamentations begins sometime around the year 1000 BCE, when the 12 tribes of Israel are united under a man named Saul, who becomes Israel's first real king. Now Israel exists both as a sovereign nation and then as a divided nation for the next 400 years, until in 586 BCE, a superpower arose to the east known as Babylon. And Babylon marched on Israel, which was at that time known as Judah, and conquered Judah in that year. After conquering Judah and the city of Jerusalem, they forced the survivors to go back across the desert with them to live in Babylon as Babylonian citizens. The Babylonians hope was that the people of Jewish descent would intermarry with the Babylonians and eventually make more Babylonians and eventually wipe out the Jewish way of life. Now, this was a traumatic experience, and it was known as the Babylonian exile. In my opinion, the Babylonian exile is the most important event in the Hebrew Bible's history. And if anyone wants to truly understand the Old Testament, then they must understand what happened in the Babylonian exile. Because the Jewish faith crumbled under the weight of this trauma. In 586 BCE, there was this existential cry to the heavens where the people of Jerusalem, now living in Babylon, begged God to show them mercy. Now, it's easy for us to look at these words and think, huh, that must have been hard. But imagine for a moment that a foreign invader attacked our country and forced you to live in their country. How many years would you exist in that exile before you gave up hope that God would show you mercy and allow you to return home? Because this is precisely what happened. The people of Judah, living in exile, begged God for mercy. And after one year, God did nothing. After two years, God did nothing. After three years, after four years, after five years, for 47 years, the people of Judah lived in exile. And at some point during one of those years, you can imagine that people started saying to each other, God has not shown us mercy, even though we asked God to show us mercy. It is in this time period, with these unanswered questions, that the book of Lamentations is written. The book of Lamentations is the story of people in exile asking God to be merciful and God doing nothing in response to those requests. Which means that the thesis of Lamentations is that prayer 
does not work. And when we're talking about trauma and loneliness on this kind of scale, we must admit that Lamentations is meant to be felt more than analyzed. Because Lamentations is a collection of five poems. And today we are looking at the second poem, which is Lamentations 2. Now, one of my favorite online commentaries talked about Lamentations 2 in this way. This commentary is known as the Bible Project. And they say that Lamentations 2 is about how God is slow to anger, but God will judge human evil. In other words, God says to the people of Israel, if you behave and are good, then I'll protect you. But if you're evil, well, then what choice do I have? Because I'm God. So with that idea in mind, we turn to Lamentations 2, which is broken up into five movements, and we read the first movement in verse 1. The poet writes, Alas, the Lord has covered daughter Zion with God's anger. Now the word anger here is important because these people are living in exile for years. This is a frightening and terrible situation. And in their suffering, the people of Judah feel that God is angry with them. The poet goes on to say, God has thrown down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. God did not protect God's temple when God displayed God's anger. Now, this is surprising and yet necessary for us to understand what's going on to move forward. You see, a long time ago, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And when that temple was there, the people of Jerusalem believed that God actually lived in the temple. So when the Babylonians come in and destroy God's temple, the people of Jerusalem are shocked. Because why wouldn't God defend God's own house? And the only answer is indicated here in verse 1 of chapter 2. The answer is that God's rage was out of control to the point where God inflicted self-harm. So in this poem, God is not the rational and level-headed parent that we desire God to be. Instead, God is so overcome with fury that God is destroying things and people left and right, even God's own temple. Verse 2 then reads, The Lord destroyed mercilessly all the homes of Jacob's descendants. In God's anger, God tore down the fortified cities of daughter Judah. God knocked to the ground and humiliated the kingdom and its rulers. In fierce anger, God destroyed the whole army of Israel. God withdrew God's right hand as the enemy attacked. God was like a raging fire in the land of Jacob. It consumed everything around it. So the first movement of this poem talks about God's out-of-control anger, which resulted in the exile. The second movement begins in verse 4 when the poet writes, God prepared God's bow like an enemy. Now this is stunning here what happens in the second movement. Because rather than pointing at Babylon and saying the Babylonians are our enemies, the author of this poem is looking around and saying, you know who our enemy is? It's not Babylon. God is our enemy. God is the one who allowed this exile to happen. God is the one who, like an enemy, pointed a bow right at us 
and was ready to shoot. This idea that God is the enemy of Jerusalem continues in verse 4. Like a foe, God killed everyone, even our strong young men. God has poured out God's anger like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord, like an enemy, destroyed Israel. God destroyed all her places. God ruined her fortified cities. We then turn to the third movement, which begins in verse 11 which talks about the emotional toll of this tragedy. The poet writes, My eyes are worn out from weeping. My stomach is in knots. My heart is poured out on the ground due to the destruction of my helpless people. Children and infants faint in the town squares. Children say to their mothers, Where are food and drink? The children faint like a wounded warrior in the city squares. So in this scene, the poet takes us to a devastated and destroyed city. And the poet tells us about the children and how they are starving, how they have lost their parents, the toll that this war has taken upon them. And to anyone who would rush into this suffering and offer answers and tell the poet, hey, it's okay, God has a plan for all of this destruction, you almost hear the poet respond to that by saying, no, 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 don't tell me about God's plan. Have you seen these kids that are suffering? The poet continues the theme of this third movement in verse 12. I see these children, the poet writes, die slowly in their mother's arms. The fourth movement begins in verse 15 when the author says, All who passed by on the road clapped their hands to mock you. They sneered and shook their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Ha! they say. Is this the city they called the perfection of beauty, the source of joy of the whole earth? All your enemies gloated over you. They sneered and gnashed their teeth. They said, We have destroyed her, the city of Jerusalem. Ha! We have waited a long time for this day. We have lived to see it. Now the fourth movement is about how in their misery there is sheer elation from the neighbors of Jerusalem as they watch the city crumble. And here in verse 17 the author of the poem offers an aside that is seized on by people trying to make sense of all of this suffering. Here during the fourth movement, when all of the enemies are mocking Jerusalem, we read, The Lord has done what the Lord has planned. God has fulfilled God's promise that God threatened long ago. This is why the Bible Project, which once again is a commentary that I like quite a bit, writes that Lamentations 2 is about how God is slow to anger, but God will judge human evil. In my opinion... You can only get to that conclusion if you overemphasize verse 17 in this poem. Because when the author talks about children dying, you can sense that the poet does not think that there is a greater plan for this, even though modern commentaries often suggest there are. So while I love the people at the Bible Project, I have to tell you, I was surprised when I read Lamentations 2 for myself when I went to the Bible Project first, because the poem was quite different than this summary implied. Now, you may ask me, how would I then summarize the second poem of Lamentations? 
And for that, I would go to the fifth movement. Because in the last three verses of chapter two of Lamentations, the speaker in the poem is different. In the first 19 verses, we hear the words of a solitary human. But in the last three verses, we hear the words of the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem speaks with total honesty. The city says, look, O Lord, consider whom have you ever afflicted like this? Should women eat their offspring, their healthy infants? Should priest and prophet be killed in the Lord's sanctuary? The young boys and old men lie dead on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You, God, killed them when you were angry. You, God, slaughtered them without mercy. As if it were a feast day, you call enemies to terrify me on every side. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemy has finished off those healthy infants whom I bore and raised. And with those words ringing in our ears, the second poem of Lamentations comes to a close. My summary of Lamentations 2 is that Lamentations 2 is ultimately setting up the testimony of the city of Jerusalem. And the testimony of Jerusalem is that this city and these people were betrayed by God. Well, this is a rather surprising turn of events, right? I mean, anytime someone stands up and says, well, God betrayed me, we would typically label that as Christians as being heresy, right? We would say God doesn't betray people. God, you can always count on. God's love will never fail you. God is always for you. And yet here's this poem in the Bible testifying from a city that they experienced the betrayal of God. No, that's not the way it works, we say. Humans betray God. God doesn't betray humans. I mean, when you just Google the word betrayal, don't add any religious language to it, right? Google search it on images, and you will see all kinds of pictures of Judas, a human, betraying Jesus Christ, who represents God, and it will tell you that this is how betrayal works. Humans betray God. God doesn't betray humans. Which is what makes this poem so frustrating. Because whether we like it or not, this poem exists. And this poem exists in the Bible, and it's a poem about God betraying humans. Apparently, the author thinks that this is something that actually happens in our lives today. What happens when humans experience the betrayal of God? To help answer that complicated question, I would like to turn our attention to a movie that came out nearly 15 years ago called Cars. Yes, you heard me right. To talk about the betrayal of God, we're going to talk about cars. 
Now, in all of the major racing scenes, there are three major racers. The red one is known as Lightning McQueen. He's the main protagonist of the film. The green one is the main villain of the film, a man named Chick Hicks. And the blue car is just simply known as the king. Now, these three race each other at multiple times during the movie. And during the final race of the movie Cars, of Cars 1, Chick Hicks gets dirty and bumps the king off the track. Now, he causes a horrific crash in which the king flips over and over again. Lightning McQueen, who is ahead of them, hears the wreckage behind him, looks behind him and sees the king battered and broken and beaten, and he decides it's time to stop. He stops mere inches before the finish line, which would have secured him the victory for that race. Chick Hicks zooms by him and claims the Piston Cup. Lightning McQueen, however, turns around, picks up the king, and begins to push him across the finish line. He even tells him, I just have this sense that the king should finish his last race. The spectators in the film cheer their hearts out. They admire this incredible act of sportsmanship as Lightning McQueen sacrificed the Piston Cup in order to help another hurt athlete. Now, Chick Hicks is eventually awarded the Piston Cup, but he is booed off the stage by the press and the media. And we have this sense that there is some poetic justice because while Chick Hicks has the cup, he has no one's respect. And the moral of the story is very clear. The movie Cars teaches us quite explicitly that there is more to life than winning. Now, it's here that we're all supposed to hug our friends and family and say, I love you so much. Pixar has hit me in the feels again. Lightning McQueen did the right thing, and that's what life's about. But unfortunately, the movie keeps going. Because after he loses the race, Lightning McQueen goes back, and his mentor tells him that he did a great job. He is then offered a major sponsorship deal with an oil company. Not only that, but he gets a ride for his best friend in a helicopter and his girlfriend finds him to be irresistible in a purely automotive kind of sense. And so while the moral is there's more to life than winning, if you watch this ending, you look at Lightning McQueen and all of these different scenes and you say, but isn't Lightning McQueen winning? <laughs> I mean... He's got money, he's got respect, he's got helicopter rides, and he's got the girl. I mean, that's basically winning, right? So while the moral of the story may be that there's more to life than winning, I would say that the message of the film is, when you do the right thing, you will win. In other words, if you act morally, you will be rewarded. And if you act immorally you will be caught. Chick Hicks acted immorally and he was booed off the stage. Lightning McQueen acted nobly and he was applauded for it. So kids, the movie says, why don't you just go ahead and do the right thing and then you will really win. <laughs> There's just one major problem with this insight, isn't there? And the problem is, life doesn't always work out like a Disney movie, does it? 
Let's imagine a world where Lightning McQueen turns around and picks up the king and helps him across the finish line. And in that world, Sally loses complete respect for him. His sponsors decide they're not going to sponsor him anymore because he's not getting enough TV airtime. His mentor yells and cusses him out because his mentor says to him, why did we work so hard if you're just going to throw it away at the end? Because it would be real nice, wouldn't it? If every time we did the right thing, we got rewarded for it. But life just isn't that accommodating. You see, when I talk about a betrayal by God, I think that a betrayal by God is when you or I decide to do what is right, but then we end up losing because of that decision. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. When was a time in your life when you did the right thing and that decision came back to bite you? Oh, I would call that a betrayal by God. Because when you do the right thing and it's inconvenient, you are ultimately professing your belief in a higher purpose, a higher power, a higher being, if you will, right? And when that belief and that trust is then not rewarded, but instead turns venomous against you, oh, well, what other words describe it then? A betrayal by God. For me, a betrayal by God is when you decide to do what is right, but then you end up losing because of that decision. And what's interesting about this poem here in Lamentations 2, being included in the Bible, is that it tells us that betrayals by God are part of human life. This is not a new phenomenon, but instead can be found in the heart of our tradition. The tradition of scripture teaches us that when we speak of God's betrayal, we are speaking holy words. And when we call the Bible holy, we are calling all of the Bible holy, even the words of Lamentations 2, a stunning poem that unflinchingly tells the story of God's betrayal of Jerusalem. Have you ever felt like religion was superficial, shallow? or immature. I have to tell you that I have felt that way too. And I believe that the reason that I felt that this religion was superficial, shallow, and mature was because it never spoke of things like God's betrayal. Just a few moments ago, we talked about the movie Cars and what would happen if everyone rejected Lightning McQueen because of his actions to help the king across the finish line. When you heard me telling that story of rejection, you may have thought, well, Disney would never make a movie like that. To which I would tell you, I would agree. Because it's not a kid's movie at that point, right? (laughs) So why do we keep making kids spirituality when we have adults who are participating in this tradition? The best way to move your spiritual journey to a mature journey of faith is to include the stories of God's betrayal. So I'd like to close today's episode 
with two stories of God's betrayal in my own life. The first story is a minor story of betrayal. The second story is a major story of betrayal. So let's begin with the first story. Several years ago, I had a few high school students with me in my vehicle because I was a youth pastor on a trip. While I was filling up at the gas station, a man approached me and told me a story. He told me that he was trying to get to San Diego and he just needed 10 gallons of gas to reach where, where we currently were to the city of San Diego. He apologized profusely for not having the cash on him. He said he understood what this looked like, what this sounded like, and he promised me that he was not manipulating me. Knowing that the kids were watching me, I turned to this man and said, I'd be happy to help you out. I walk over to the gas pump, put my credit card in the machine, and the man put the gas pump in his car. I watched as four gallons, five gallons, six gallons went by. Around eight gallons, I thought to myself, I want to set a good example for these kids. I want to give him a full tank and not just 10 gallons. So 10 gallons went by, 11 gallons, 12 gallons. I was living generously, right? And when that machine hit 13 gallons, that man looked at me, the man whose car I was filling up, and he said to me, hey, I really appreciate this. I was wondering if I could ask another favor. I was a bit surprised by this, and I said, what favor are you asking? And as the gas pump clicked, signifying a full tank, he said to me, would you also fill up my brother's truck? And he pointed to a car behind him, and I got a wave from the guy behind the wheel of a brand new Toyota Tacoma. Oh. <laughs> I loudly said, no, and walked back to the car, grumpy that I had helped this person. That is a minor betrayal of God. To shift gears a bit, I now want to tell you about a major betrayal of God. And I have to tell you, this is a story that does not make me look good. I tell you that because this is a story I've thought about often. It happened just a few years ago. And it's one of those stories that reminds me of Lamentations 2. I don't know how to describe this story other than a betrayal by God. Now, this story revolves around a woman named Bethany, which is not her real name. Bethany was dating Alan in the year 2018, and once again, Alan is not his real name. Now, both Alan and Bethany attended the same college, which I will refer to as the university. Now, Alan and Bethany had been dating for years when in September of 2018, they broke up. Something happened at that breakup that I will tell you about in a moment. And the way I will tell you about that is in a letter I wrote to the university on May 10 of 2019. Now, please note that when I am writing this letter, it is seven and a half months after the breakup occurred in September of 2018. The last thing I need you to remember before I read this letter is that I have expressed permission from Bethany to share this story with you today. 
So let's begin with this letter that I wrote to the university on May 10 of 2019. I write, to the university, my name is Craig Hadley and I am Bethany's pastor. Last September, Bethany made a counseling appointment with me. And during that session, she informed me that her boyfriend, Alan, and her broke up the night before. Bethany was heavy hearted. Through tears, she recounted the story to me. And as she neared the end, she told me that Alan threatened to kill himself unless Bethany stayed with him. My heart stopped upon hearing this harrowing ultimatum. I immediately advised Bethany to inform the university of Alan's suicidal threat. I did this because there are only two possible outcomes when Alan threatens suicide. Number one, he's serious. He's ready to kill himself and the university needs to help him immediately. Or number two, he's malicious. He isn't suicidal, but he is attempting to saddle Bethany with overwhelming guilt to coerce her to stay in a romantic relationship. This coercion is abuse. After some thought, Bethany did as I advised, and she informed the university of Alan's suicidal threat. In return, the university completely failed Bethany for the past seven months and counting in three big ways. Number one, Alan has continued to aggressively harass and stalk Bethany. He has attempted to contact her via phone calls, text messages, Instagram, Facebook, and even Venmo. He has threatened her by saying that he will show up at her workplace, he has waited outside of her classes, and he has hopped over a fence to get to her apartment window after midnight two times. Bethany informed the university that Alan was stalking her and the university did not believe her. It was not until Bethany's RA witnessed Alan hopping a fence after midnight the second time that the university finally believed Bethany's account. It was only after this witness that the university finally placed a restraining order on Alan seven months after the initial abuse was filed. Number two, after Bethany reported Alan's suicidal threat, the university opened an investigation where they sided with Alan. Alan denied the suicidal threat even though he was stalking Bethany at the time. In response, the board overseeing the investigation called Bethany in and informed her that they did not believe her account of the story and that the university believed that Alan never threatened suicide. To make matters worse, the university accused Bethany of lying, suggesting she made up the suicidal threat to get revenge against Alan after their breakup. Number three. Today, May 10, 2019, Bethany is being asked to tell her story again. From the beginning, including details of their breakup, Alan's suicidal threat, and all of the terrible moments of harassment. When Bethany first reported her story to the university, she was frustrated by the fact that the person who heard her story did not write anything down. A few days later, that person called Bethany back into their office and asked her to relive the trauma to her story again so that this time they could write it down. Since that time, 
Bethany has told her story more than six times to different boards and different officials. Most of these boards and officials have promised Bethany that this will be the last time she will have to tell her story. And then they promise that this board or this official is finally going to take her story seriously. So here we are, once again, with another board telling Bethany that this ninth time of telling her story will be the last time that her story needs to be told and that her story will finally be taken seriously and she will not have to tell it again. Bethany's story has shown a light on this university's ineptitude in dealing with abuse. Allen's actions toward Bethany have been destructive since September 2018 and the university is finally getting around to doing something about it in May of 2019. The main purpose of my writing is to ask the university to fully review and implement radical changes in the way they treat survivors of abuse. The Office of Student Life must be better equipped to be sympathetic toward people who are experiencing pain. Staff from the highest level on downward should be taught to never accuse a survivor like Bethany of making up suicidal threats. Lastly, the university must recognize that they have been complicit in Allen's behavior by allowing him to stalk and harass Bethany for so long before finally taking action. I do not suggest this complicity lightly. To demonstrate how the university has enabled the bad behavior of Allen, you do not need to look further than today's meeting with Bethany. The meeting today was originally scheduled for May 2, and today is May 10. The university informed Bethany that this meeting needed to be postponed eight days so that someone with more experience could handle this case. In that delay, Alan showed up to a church Bethany was worshiping at and attempted to confront her in person. This resulted in Bethany acquiring a restraining order from the court on Monday, May 6. This frightening moment, and all of the frightening moments of harassment and stalking before this one, could have been avoided if the university decided to act swiftly against the initial abuse of coercion. Please look at Bethany's story as an opportunity to make things right, to make sure that something like this will never happen again, and to make this university a better place to be a student. Sincerely, Craig Hadley. I spoke on the phone with Bethany this week here in 2021 and she is currently living with the fallout still of her decision to alert the university that someone threatened suicide next to her my friends this is a betrayal by god and i just want to offer three quick thoughts in response to this disheartening story the first thought is that we need to make sure that what happened to Bethany never happens again. No matter where you work or where you go to school or where you go to church, let's all agree that the way that this school treated Bethany was evil and we must commit to implementing changes to make sure that wherever we are, Bethany's story does not happen again.
The second thought is that we need to cultivate spaces as religious people where we can welcome the stories of God's betrayal. Because if the Bible can welcome the stories of God's betrayal, then mature spirituality would encourage us to do the same. And the third thought is for Bethany. If you are listening today, I know you are still dealing with the fallout of this decision. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I gave you the best advice. I believe that the university would treat you with respect, dignity, and honor. And they did everything but that. Please know that I admire your courage in light of the difficult situation you went through. You inspired me week in and week out because you committed yourself to doing the right thing. Thank you for your inspiration. And to everyone listening, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even when Jesus Christ betrays us. Amen. <laughs>